Let's take our Bibles. Let's head over to Psalm 127. Psalm 127 for our study tonight, just to continue with what we were talking about in regards to the area of dealing with parents. There was an article I read uh, that I wanted to share with you. It's this article that's written by a lady that says, 10 things that I said I would never happen when I became a parent. Did you guys have this too? Deb and I were the perfect parents before we had kids. We had all the answers. We know exactly how everybody else should take care of their kids. And so this lady's writing from that perspective. And she said, these are the ten things I said my kids would never do until I had kids. She said, my kids will never behave that way in public. By behave, I mean they will never throw one of those tantrums in the store. Those hysterical fits that sound like they're being chased down the cereal aisle by an actual shark. When tantrums actually happen in public, now I react the way anyone in my situation would. I turn and ask random people if they know who those kids are. Or I'll whisper to the people next to me, I'm only the nanny. Occasionally I compliment my children on their form as they thrash and contort their bodies in ways that defy both human biology and physics. And I tell them, good job. Number two, I will never leave the house looking like that. Oh, but I do. It's not that I don't care how I look. I mean, mostly I don't really care how I look, but a lot of times I actually forget to do things like brush my hair or put on makeup or brush my teeth after I've spent all that time it takes to get a toddler dressed. My kids, here's the third one, my kids will never eat fast food or any bad food. My toddlers are picky, so getting them to eat anything that isn't a sticker or a crayon is a small victory in my world. If they pass on green beans, carrots, and choose to inhale chicken nuggets or pepperoni, it's an amen, arm-raising, hallelujah kind of moment. I always toss in a gummy vitamin twice a day just to live without guilt. Number four, my house will never look like that. My house looks like a -a Build-A-Bear workshop exploded in it. There are stuffed animals, clothes, and toys parts scattered everywhere. I've learned that cleaning up after kids while they're awake is like trying to clean up splattered food from an open blender that's still running. It's exhausting. The only way my house will ever be clean is if it spontaneously combusts into fire. Number five, I will never be late for anything. The slowest my children ever move is when we have to go anywhere that has a start time. Is that true? Does that happen in your home? On any given day, my kids burn around the house like their pants are on fire. They move with the energy of 80 toddlers, breaking the sound barrier as they, sound barrier as they circle the dining room table for the billionth time. The second I have to be anywhere and tell them we have to go, time goes backwards. It turns into negative time. Number six, I will never negotiate with my children. Negotiation is a powerful tool. It gives my children the chance to exercise decision-making abilities, thus pushing them towards successful independence. Just kidding. It gives me my way. For example, if little Susie wants ice cream, she has to eat three more chicken nuggets. If she doesn't eat them, everyone else at the table gets ice cream. Raising a child is like a business. It's all about incentives. Okay, you might say it's bribing. I call it incentives. You call it bribing. Tomato, tomato, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Number seven, I will not allow my children to watch their iPads so much. During winter months such as these, when your family is one snowflake away from mumbling themselves into full-fledged cabin fever, iPods, electrical devices, they're a sanctuary. A magical box that emits irresistible sounds and colors that buy me at least 15 minutes of motionless activity, 
I'll take it any time. <laughs> Number eight, I will never get annoyed with my children. I will always be patient. Sometimes I initiate a game of hide-and-seek, and I don't tell anyone else about it. Then I'll hide in places where the three-year-old would never think to look, like inside the dryer. And that gives me my 15-minute break where I can just rest and eat candy. Number nine, I won't, I won't uh, let my kids stop me from traveling. <clears throat> Taking a trip to Target requires more items than the settlers needed for the Western expansion of the United States. If our forefathers had mostly toddlers in tow, they would have made it as far as Ohio before one of them realized that they had left a toy behind. After the meltdown was over, everyone would have mutually agreed that Ohio was West enough. We do, now, we do travel now that we have kids, but I'm not up for discussing our experiences. I'm still trying to sort it all out during therapy. Number 10, my children will listen to me when I tell them something. I honestly believe that early childhood development doesn't include the ability to listen. Hear yes, listen no. For whatever reason, no one hears me until I'm full-blown auctioneer mode, rattling words at 15, uh, 115 decibels. And then she goes on and makes other comments. There's nothing more humbling than becoming a parent. There's no experience in life that challenges your character, patience, and endurance like raising children. That is a truism. That is a fact. And so we wanted to talk about it for just a couple of weeks, the idea of parenting. A lot of you are on the backside of parenting. Some of you are in the throes of it. Some of you, hopefully one day you'll have the blessed opportunity to do that. But what we've talked about is that idea that getting your kids, working with your kids is like getting that car lined up so it stays on the hoist when it's going to be under repair. And so we have to make sure that we are lining up our lives according to the Bible, as we illustrated with my dad's business this morning. And so we talked about the idea this morning, several of these different thoughts of lining up your life with the Word of God, understanding that parenting is a great honor, understanding that our greatest goal is to have godly kids, not just good kids that stay out of trouble, but godly kids who love and serve the Lord, raising godly kids will bring great joy, but it needs work on your part. Kids need spiritual training. It just isn't going to be automatic. And so you need to train them up in the way they should go, and therefore you have to be purposeful. You have to be planning. You have to be thinking through. What do we need to address? How are we going to address this? What areas? And building. It takes purposeful, proactive effort on your part. We talked about taking the long look. Don't get discouraged if things are still in the process. If that process is going to last for many, many years, take the long look and then realize that as you're dealing with the children, each and every individual is uniquely designed. Therefore, you have to know the bent of your child. The number eight that I was going to deal with this morning is this. The number eight is even though parenting has changed in recent years, and I want to stop right there. Has parenting changed? Oh, yeah. How come? What ways have parenting cha- has it changed in this modern generation than maybe it was a couple of generations ago? How has parenting changed? Okay, discipline, the carrying it out, being, being acceptable and no longer being acceptable. What's that? Technology. Does it play into our lives? Yeah, when we were kids, some of us, and I know that's you know, the old thing that we shouldn't be doing, but when we were kids, did we have video games to preoccupy us? No, they were not they were not existent. Uh, you know, none of that was there. And so you, you had to keep yourself more occupied by beating up on your siblings or finding some other type of game. And so it was a different world where you didn't have those devices. They're good devices. But like anything else, good can be turned into corruption. How else has family life changed? Social 
What do you mean? Okay. Now, COVID has changed a lot of things, right? Yeah. Um, so impacting. But even in that aspect of socializing, um, when, when we were little, we would get on our bikes and we were gone for the whole day without exaggeration. And we were safe in the community. And uh, did bad things happen in communities? Not at, like it was today. Uh, when we were raising our kids, we weren't so comfortable letting them be all gone all day on their bike. Because the world was changing then. Parents today, I, you know, with the crazies that are out there, I, I don't know if I shared on Wednesday night, Tom Latham was talking about in, the, in Brazil where they're at. They have a whole new thing happening in Brazil, in that country. They had somebody go in and shoot up a daycare center and shoot a number of children. That person had gone online and had created a following online and created a game online that the younger the children are, the more points you get if you attack children and kill them. And he says it's become popular. Online, there is a lot of this conversation that the government is reacting. A lot of these people are saying, I'm going to go here, I'm going to go there. And it's creating a reaction in the society of fear that he said when they were doing their school ministries this past week, one-third of the students showed up for school. The other two-thirds, the parents kept home because they're afraid. We didn't have that kind of crazy stuff going on you know, when we were growing up. But we did have some crazies, but not as blatant as it is today. Hey, changes in community as a whole. Are we living in a world where it's mostly two, two-parent workplaces? In most families, it's two, which means the kids are becoming what we would call latchkey kids. That's just more and more. Okay, in in the uh, in the society when it was an agrarian society, what did that mean for families? They worked together. The kids saw mom and dad working, and dad where he worked. All of a sudden, when the industrial revolution, what changed? Dad went off, and there wasn't a knowledge of work. They didn't see demonstrate in front of them the same work ethic that used to be on the farm place. Did that impact generations? It really did. It really did. What about family dynamics? When we stopped becoming an agrarian, became an industrial nation, what did that do to families? It created more mobility. So as a result, a lot of families don't live next to mom and dad or grandma and grandpa or aunts and uncles in the same community, which means if you're parenting, where do you go for advice? Generations ago, who would they go to? The family that's right next door. And all of a sudden now, it's a whole different ball game because people are more mobile. People are more transient, which isn't evil, but it changes the dynamics of a family. For families where the parents are right nearby, if the couple are both working, mom and dad, grandparents are involved with watching and helping and providing daycare. In some families where that isn't the possibility because they're distance, all of a sudden you're doing outsiders of the family that are influencing the kids a whole lot more, which would change some of that, that influence and that structure. You have the new challenges, and you mentioned this when you mentioned technology. Is the modern education a challenge? Yes or no? The way things are being taught. Okay, I'll give you one. Um, uh, one, of, one of our folk was talking about how that they got a note 
from one of the teachers that said parents were, were afraid that with this math and this algebra that's taking place for, it was 8th, ninth grade, that a lot of the parents, you're doing the homework for the kids. Please don't do the homework for them. They have to work this out to understand. So the teacher sent this note home saying, moms and dads, please don't do the work for them. Make sure that they do the work. A dad sent back a note and said, I was really amazed that you thought we had the ability to do the algebra for them. Um, and you know how that works with that idea of the different threats. This I found interesting. John Hopkins he did, a, did a study over several decades. And in the 70s, they asked the, the kids in the elementary age, what were the things they feared the most? And the kids, the top five answers that the kids gave were animals, dark rooms, high places, strangers, loud noises. In 2010, they did the same thing with kids who were in the elementary age. And they asked them, what are they fear the most. Interesting how the kids' top five changed. My parents divorcing, terrorist attacks, cancer, pollution, and being physically assaulted. That's a whole different ballgame that you parents have to deal with in trying to deal with kids' fears. I'm not eliminating the first ones, but you have a whole new and so it's extremely challenging when we have these, these different ideas that we've already talked about. So with that in mind, even though parenting has changed, God's Word and life stress the ongoing reality that you parents are typically still the single greatest influence on a child's development. The reason we can say that from Scripture where he's talking about training up a child, and where we started with Psalm 127, except the Lord build the house, they that labor, labor in vain. And then he talks about happy is the man that has his quiver full, that children are heritage from the Lord. And then we expanded this morning to training up a child, that fathers, provoke not your children, bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. God still addresses parents as being the one to train the children. They have the responsibility. God still understands that the parents are the tremendous influence upon a child, the greatest influence upon a child uh, in, in impacting them. And so as you have that responsibility, that influence, you need to look and say, okay, I need to take advantage of that. And what I wanted to point out this morning, I want to rehearse here, is you still have the most time of anybody dealing with the kids. Here's a survey that was done from uh, Southern Early Childhood that talks about where do the kids spend their times. We're talking about teens. On average in America, this is like two years ago, uh, or pre-COVID, I should say, uh, right before pre-COVID. School was 18%. Home was 81%. And when it comes to church, 1% is where the kids are. To say, well, the church is going to do the job of training the kids spiritually. We can't. We don't have the opportunity. We don't have the time. It really falls more on you. We'll assist you. We'll help you. But we cannot do that task with such limited time. So it's really parents understanding this is my role. This is my responsibility. This is my God-given opportunity, and I can do it. I can train them up, so take advantage of that and work at it. Number nine that we had this morning that I didn't get to was this. God's Word says His measurement of being a successful parent. His measurement is not based on what your child does or becomes, but it is more based upon what you are or what you've done. What I'm getting at is this idea. That even though you're supposed to be seeking to influence and do all you can to influence your children, the reality of Scripture is that your children do have free choice, especially as they get older, especially as the idea of, okay, as they become young adults. What if they choose not to follow the Lord? 
Did you fail? Do you need to repent? Now, I don't know what you did or did not do. But I do know this, that you are not going to be held accountable or judged for all the choices that your adult children make. The Word of God makes it clear. The soul who sins shall die. The son shall not bear the guilt of the father, nor the father bear the guilt of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself. The wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. Therefore, I will judge you, O house of Israel, everyone according to his ways. Do I have responsibility and accountability for what I did with training my children? Yes. I have bear some of that. But... Does, do my kids still have a free will to accept or to reject that? And the answer is yes. Yes. With God's help, as I train them up, we have the Spirit of God working and helping. But if my children go wayward, and if they walk away from the Lord after having been trained, is that wholly on me? Okay, the Scriptures... Let me, let me give you points. Okay? God judges parents based upon how you respond when your children do wrong. I'll give you a couple of illustrations. Abraham has two sons, Ishmael and he has uh, Isaac. The one is a godly line, one isn't a godly line. And so we know that Isaac is following the Lord. We know that Ishmael is the father of the Arab nations, goes off. And so God doesn't say, Abraham, because Ishmael will do bad choices, therefore I'm going to punish you. It doesn't work that way. God didn't do that to Abraham. For he says, what I know about Abraham is he will command his children and his household after him if they keep the way of the Lord to do justice. God is looking and saying, did he know? Does, did Abraham teach properly? And yet Ishmael had a choice. Did Abraham do what was right? I know he will. He will teach. How they respond is still going to be back on them. But he is going to, God, he is going to teach. That's a commendation to Abraham. Here's one for you that you're more familiar with. Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas. Hophni and Phinehas and Eli all had the job of being priests in the Old Testament. Eli was the chief priest. Hophni and Phinehas were part of the two. Hophni, Hophni and Phinehas, what were they as far as priests? Good, bad? Okay, really bad, really bad. They were ripping off the people. They were molesting the ladies. It was a horrible, horrible situation. And so Eli was in charge. And when he heard all that his sons had done, it says he went to them and said, why are you doing such things? Notwithstanding, they hearkened not unto his voice. Did he challenge them? Yeah, the passage says he challenged them. And God said that he was going to take out Hophni and Phinehas, that their lives would be ended but then he also, in that whole sequence, Eli got disciplined. Why did Eli get disciplined? Because of Hophni and Phinehas doing wrong? No. What did you say? How, how, how he responded. He got angry and he challenged them. What else did he do? Somebody said it. He did nothing else. He did nothing else. The prophet that comes and speaks to him speaks of his demise. And the reason is that you did nothing more to stop your sons. What should he have done as the chief high priest? He should have had them taken out of the priesthood. He should have had them disciplined. Should have had them for all their immorality. He should have had their lives taken away. It was capital punishment. So that's why the prophet says to Eli these words, Wherefore you kick at my sacrifices and honor your sons above me. And he says, And to make yourselves fat, 
Remember what that, what that impression is? That when the sons went in, they took the, fatti- the fattiest part of the meat for themselves, which they weren't supposed to. They would leave it for the Lord. But they took it for themselves. Who participated with them? Eli did. Eli did because he says, you're making yourselves, all of you, fat. He didn't like what they were doing, but he didn't stop them like he should, and he participated in it. Therefore, not only were his sons disciplined, but so was Eli, okay? And it was because of his decisions, not just because of his adult children doing wrong. So you have that idea that God's Word does indicate free will. And it does indicate that that young people are being warned. I ended up with the passage from Proverbs 1 this morning. My son, if sinners entice thee, consent thou not. And so the, 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 the proverbial sage indicates, teaches us, we're supposed to be pleading. We're supposed to be teaching. We're supposed to be indicating. But they have a choice whether they say yes or no to the sinner. And so we train, we do what we can, but we do have some limitations. And thank God that as you mostly, most of the time you're investing in your kids, they're responding to the Word of God. And they're acting according to the Word of God. But do not get discouraged. Do not quit. Do not say, you know, I, I'm just a horrible... Well, maybe you were a horrible parent. I don't know. But if you did what was right... Do not carry an unnecessary burden and guilt if your children have rejected the Lord. If you can say before God, I did what I should. And so then it brings us to where we were this morning with that idea of asking ourselves what kind of parent we were. We talked about this this morning of being godly people. Let me expand a little bit on this passage. In Psalm 127, I mentioned it this morning. Psalm 127 is family-oriented. You see that from the beginning. Except the Lord build a house. Lo, children are a heritage for the Lord. Happy is the man that has his quiver full. Same thing in Psalm 128. Blessed is everyone that fears the Lord, that for you shall eat the labor of your hands, happy you shall be. Your wife shall be as fruitful vine by the sides of your house. Your children like olive plants. And he goes on, talks about that idea in verse 6. You shall see your children's children or grandchildren. Both of these passage, back to back, it's interesting that they're dealing with the family. Both of these chapters, these Psalms, are also dealing with joy. How to have happiness. How to have blessing. In fact, in, um, in Psalm 128, he's talking about the blessings of God, and he uses the same word, or two words that are similar, he uses them four times in this text. He uses the word Asher and Barak that talk about inner blessings as well as physical blessings. And he's, so he's saying, here's how families can be blessed. Here's how you as an individual within your family relationship will be blessed. And these blessings include these things. A per good, personal, sound state of mind. For parents with young children, this is especially important. You know, to keep your sanity, it shall be well with you. The idea of that, it shall be satisfying. There will be a peace of the Spirit. He talks about good health and long life in Psalm 128, where he makes that clear that you're able to labor, verse 2, that you shall eat the labor of your hands. In other words, you're going to be able to do your job, to be able to labor, to do that. And then as well, you're going to see your children are 
your grandchildren. And so there's all the days of your life. There's the blessing of grandchildren. And then he goes on, he says, here's some other added blessings that will come to you. Blessings on your work. Blessings upon your nation, upon your community. He says that there will be the peace upon Israel. Now remember, this is written to a Jewish audience. And he's saying your community, your country is going to have blessings if, if you are one that God can bless. And so then he talks about the family in particular, how God will bless the family. And the first person that he talks to, to and about, are dads. That he says, you are going to be blessed. You're going to have peace of mind. Well, the you that he's talking to is the person who has a wife. Verse 3, your wife. The person that he's talking to is somebody who has children, your children. Then he talks about great uh, having grandchildren. So he's talking to the dads. He's talking to the fathers. This is addressed to them. And he's saying, you will eat the labor of your hands. You will be happy. It'll be well with you. Dads, this is what I'm giving you. This is what I'll promise you. This is the, the blessing that I'm giving you. Then he talks about the wives, the moms. He says how they're going to bless, he's going to bless them. And he makes the comment that he says, Moms, I'll bless you in such a way that your wife shall be as a fruitful vine by the sides of your house. What's that mean? Well, if we went back into Bible days and lived in an agrarian, a farm country culture, lived where they were by the farms, we would understand what he's talking about as grapevines. They were very common. They were essential for the daily needs that the family had. They were, they were when, uh, when we just had our conference and uh, the novice were here, the novice stayed in the guest room. And when we were talking, do you need anything? It was just, it was his natural reaction all the time. Funny and serious was, we need, what's the oriental food? Rice. We need rice. You know, where can we, if we go to Wendy's, will they sell us a burger with rice? Instead of French fries. You know, if we go to you know, Chick-fil-A, do they sell rice with the, instead of French fries? And it was this rice, 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 rice. And, and we understand that that's certain cultures, that's the way they are. You know, they have a specific food that they really like. Well, in Bible days, he's talking about the grapevines, which would be very important to their family to their unit. And you understand all that because it would be what would be their beverage because of the bad water in that area. But the, the, um, the wines, the, the grape juice would be used for all kinds of things. Okay, it could be used medicinally. The idea basically is saying, okay, wives, I'm going to make you fruitful. I'm going to make you so you are providing nourishment, that you are feeding the family, so that you are really a blessing to the household, that you are meeting the essential needs. I'll give you that ability. I will help you to become the virtuous woman. And so he's talking about blessings upon the wives, that she will be a great comfort, a great benefit to her family. Then he makes the comment right after that in verse 3, he talks about the kids. And he's talking about the teenagers, the young kids. He's saying as well that your children shall be like olive plants round about your table. You'll see your grandchildren peace upon Israel. What's he mean by comparing kids to these olive trees? Again, if we went back and lived there, we would have a little bit better of a clue that we'd understand that these olive plants were very common in that area. In fact, they were called, uh, in, in, you know, unofficially, the olive tree was Israel's national tree. It was so important. It was such a benefit. They usually took, and you make the comparisons, they usually took about 15, 20 years before they were productive. How long does it take a young person 
Okay? In that sense that the olive plants, as they grew, they didn't always grow straight as an arrow. They would usually grow, they'd be a little bit gnarly, twisted, in uneven clusters. Do kids ever show a gnarliness? Do they ever grow unevenly? Yes, no? Okay, I mean, we even joke about it. We even call it growth spurts. You know, that there's not, that there's these periods and all of a sudden somebody may shoot up three feet, you know, in, in one period. And yet they're called the beauty of the olive tree. For as weird as the tree might look, as gnarly as it looks, the consideration, this is a beautiful tree. Why is that? Because if we remember, if we grew up in those days, what were the benefits of the olives to the people? What did they use them for? They used to they use it for cooking. Okay, light. The oil that they use for light. Medicine. Oh, even on the face, yes. The um, cosmetic type use, okay. They would pour it on heads for anointing. It was ceremonial. Did they eat them? Yeah, yeah. And so you have, if you start looking, you have all these different possibilities, for these olives, that if you lived in that culture, you want an olive tree and you're harvesting it because this is what you're after. You're not going to Walmart to buy the oil for your lamps. You're getting it from your backyard. And so it's very important that these peoples, that they would use this. So draw your analogy, okay? When he says your children are like olive plants, what's he mean by that? We've already mentioned a couple of things. What's the normal, pro- normal time period before productivity? Yeah, 15, 20 years. How do they look? Gnarly at times, okay? I mean, they're always angelic when they're in bed sound asleep. Yeah, it's when they wake up in the middle of the night, okay, that they look gnarly. Okay, what else is the benefit of, or the parallels? Can they, be, can they be beneficial to you? The answer is supposed to be... Yes. Okay, so we look and said children can be in variations. They can be gnarly. They take years to mature. But they become beautiful to the parents. The parents look and say they're a beautiful plant. They're a, they're a beautiful person. And they see their beauty just absolutely you know, more than others. They refresh our lives. They meet the needs in the older age. They are a great fruit. They can be a daily benefit. That is true of children. And he says, okay, if you want this type of blessing upon your house, and these are all the blessings I'm going to give, okay? I'm going to bless your kids. I'm going to bless your spouse. I'm going to bless you with this peace. And we know that children can be a blessing. We talked about that this morning. We started with these thoughts under number one, okay, that children are a benefit. They can be that blessing. The question that you have to ask is, he's talking to the, to the readers here in this psalm, and he's saying, if you want blessings upon your household, what do you have to do to merit such divine blessings? That's the key of this, ver- this passage. What kind of person do I need to be so I have product, blessings, you know, children that would follow the Lord. And he makes it very clear in the, in the passage, verse 1. Blessed is everyone that does what? What's your Bible reading in the very first phrases? That fears who? That fears the Lord and that does what? Walks in, he's talking here not just about feelings, not just about thoughts, but that, that convert into actions. 
He's talking about an attitude that becomes actions. It's talking about a right relation, a right walk with the Lord. It's in essence saying, I want to make God my priority. I want God, because notice in the very beginning of the previous psalm, he starts off that without the Lord, you can't do anything. They that build a house without the Lord, they labor in vain. And he starts off the next psalm, right away, the next song, he starts off with, you got to fear the Lord. you got to make the Lord your priority. This is the first thing mentioned at the very beginning of both psalms. And so he's talking about that idea of, hey, that fear of the Lord. And we understand what the fear of the Lord is. Is it being afraid of God? Is that what it is? No, it has the idea of reverential respect towards the Lord. Having a, re- a respectful fear that if I do wrong, the Lord will chasten me. Having a respect that he is holy, he is mighty, that he sees everything I do, that he's watching all that I do, that fear of the Lord. Doing what he wants, you walk in his ways. You're obedient to him. Now, especially to the Jew of the Old Testament, they knew what they were to do. Bring it to modern believers. Is there application? Do you know from the word of God what he wants you to do? Oh yeah, a whole lot of it. A whole lot of it is, is mentioned. That idea of walking like him, seeking after him, is, is just redundant in this passage with that whole concept. And I've told you this. I've, I've joked about this, that when the grandkids come, we play hide-and-seek. And the last two times, and they did it to me again about six weeks ago, we play hide-and-go-seek, I find a great spot, they can't find me, and they get distracted and they forget about me. And I'm sitting in this curled-up position behind the recliner, and it's like, they're playing. They're doing something totally. They forgot about me. You know? And then when I come out, they go, oh, hi, Papa. Where were you? He had a good hiding place. And then they go back to their thing. I wonder if God doesn't feel that way about us. That we get so busy, and we love God on a Sunday morning, and we're really excited about meeting God, but by Wednesday, we forget all about him. And then we say, oh, yeah, yeah, I forgot about you. I hope you're having a good day, God. No, no, the psalmist is saying when you walk with the Lord, this is a perpetual, this is a personal, this is a a daily thing that you're seeking after the Lord. So you have to ask yourself this question. I want the blessings, but am I the type of person that God can bless? Do we have the type of home that God can bless? Do we have the type of marriage that God can bless where he is honored by that? And so Solomon says you have to have a right walk. And then, just implicitly implied in this verse, you have to have the right worship. The right worship is mentioned in this because the psalmist is encouraged. Okay, Bob, I need your help. You taught on these verses just in in the Psalms class. What are these two verses a part of? The Psalms of of Ascent. What does that mean? You've got to speak loud so that they can hear it on my microphone. And what were these songs to be reminding them about? Okay. And so as a part of their, how often do they do this? Okay. That they would sing these psalms as they are marching towards Jerusalem and doing those, those caravans. And so this is all a part of this section of psalms that became the songs of ascent that are dealing with the idea of, okay, let's worship God. Let's worship God. Which, oops, let me go back. I wanted to just emphasize. Okay, 
their purpose is you're showing worship. When the families would, uh, when the people would go, the families are with them, right? So the parents, as they're singing this, who are they teaching these songs to? Their kids. And their kids are learning all of this so as to get in their mind this walk with the Lord, this worship of the Lord, this whole idea, and so that the kids would then, then the next generation, repeat the same thing and pass this on and do what Deuteronomy 6, Psalm 78 that we looked at this morning, that we're passing this on. This idea of worship was extremely important to the Jewish culture passing on their faith that even as they walked in the way, they were singing these songs, they were doing it, not, they, they weren't even in the temple yet. And they're practicing this. So, question comes, what about you in teaching worship to your kids? In, in letting them know this proper worship by you praising and promoting God. By you making it very relevant that God is a holy one, that God is a great, merciful God, that God is a God who will bless, but who will also correct us. And so the questions are, do you lift up God? Do you praise Him in public? Do you express gratitude at home for what God has done? When you discuss what you've learned in church or your Bible studies, is it positive around the Word of God? It is one thing to be critical of how it's presented. Yeah, and we can all do that. I can find fault in the way I speak and the way that I present it and everybody else. But what, a, what lesson are we giving our kids when we are more caught up with the presentation than the principles? And we make that the issue and we forget that our kids are listening. And are they learning that when we walk away, we should be praising instead of critiquing? That we should be focused on God and not what other people wore. Not on what, uh, what other people, you know, how they dressed or how they acted or how they looked. And so we should, be in our worship, be celebrating the mercies, the blessings, the person of God Almighty and bragging on Him. So we want the blessings and you need to be the type of person that God can bless. Let me embark on the next section, okay? And we won't get far at all because they're going to be closing down shop in the back in a few minutes. But I want to just mention number 11. Number 11 on this principles takes us to the book of Ephesians. Would you jump there with me, please? In Ephesians chapter 5, you're very familiar with the book of Ephesians in the New Testament, where he's talking in in Ephesians chapter 5, he talks about husbands and wives. What does he tell the husbands to do with the wives? Love your wives. What does he tell the wives to do for the husbands? See, that always goes quiet whenever you mention it. Okay. Submit or respect your husbands. What does he tell the, the fathers to do in chapter 6? Oh, I'm sorry. Let's start off with children. What does he tell children to do? Oh, see, that one always gets everybody every, because we know that one. Children, obey your parents. Then what does he tell the fathers? Stop provoking your children to wrath. Okay. Understand the context of what he's doing in this passage. It all begins with chapter 5 going all the way back to verse... Well, let's pick up in verse 18. In verse 18, he says, Be not drunk with wine, where is in excess, but be what? Filled with the Spirit. Okay, then he talks about reactions to the filling of the Spirit. Speaking to yourselves in psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, singing, making melody in your heart. Another reaction. Giving your thanks always for all things unto God and the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
My Bible, unfortunately, puts a paragraph break right there, as if the next paragraph separates from the filling of the Spirit. That's unfortunate. Because the next phrase continues, how does a Spirit-filled person respond and operate? Not only are they speaking to themselves the Psalms, not only are they giving thanks, but they submit themselves one to another in the fear of God. What does it mean in the book of Ephesians when he says in this passage, starting the the section on family, what does he mean by submit yourselves one to another? Any clue? Any idea what it means to submit yourselves one to another? Okay, have a servant's attitude. Excellent. What's that? Respect? Okay. Let me remind you what this text is. This is a command, okay, that submit yourselves. It's a, it's a verbal command that God is giving. It's not just an option. He is giving an imperative here. He it literally has this idea, yes, start and keep on doing this. Okay, start and keep on submitting yourselves one to another. It's in the middle voice. The middle voice means this you do to yourself, or you choose for yourself to do this. I want you to do this. This isn't somebody else can make you submit in, this, in the way I'm talking about, but you have to choose this. This is voluntarily you saying, okay, in people relationships, this is what I'm going to do in obedience to God. And when he says yourselves, it's a plural. It includes everyone in the, in the audience who is hearing what he's speaking. And in the audience to whom he's speaking, I remind you that when Paul writes this letter, he speaks revolutionarily. He speaks like no other writer spoke in that era of time. How do we know that? He addresses children. How many writers in public addressed kids? They didn't. How many addressed ladies? They didn't typically. But Paul, under the Spirit of God, is bringing in his audience saying, I'm talking to the kids, I'm talking to the wives, I'm talking to the husbands, because I think you're valuable. And so under the Spirit of God, he's saying, all of you need to do this. You all need to submit. The word that he uses, hupitasso, is, the, is a military word. It means simply to take your spot in rank, to fill in the gap. It's made basically, some of you who feel served in the military, they would call you out, and you were supposed to f- make formation. And you had a spot where you're supposed to stand. That's what submit means. In this passage, take the assigned spot. So when he's talking about submitting, he is saying, I have assigned roles for you. The assigned role I have for husbands is to really focus on loving their wives. The assigned role I have for the wives is really focused on, in this text, that they're supposed to do is to submit and respect their husbands. The assigned role that I have for the kids is to listen and respect your parents. But he gives an assigned role to parents in this very text. And not only in this text, but in several others, he gives the assignments of what parents are to do, which we want to be talking about over the next couple weeks. What are these assignments? Let me just start off with this one. You have an assignment from God to provide slash protect. Take care of your kids' physical needs. Where do we get that in Scripture? It's not necessarily right here in this text, but can you think of other passage in the New Testament that, di- that dictates, parents, you've got to be taking care of your kids. Oh, I'm not the only one that was stumped by that. 
There are a couple, okay? But why aren't there so many blatant verses? It's so commonsensical. It's so commonsensical, and it's so part of our culture, every culture. Every culture, parents are supposed to take care of kids. But there are a couple really clear statements in the New Testament about taking care of your family. Can you think of one of them? If a man provides not for his household, he's worse than an infidel. Okay, So you have a, a clear text that talks about responsibility of meeting the needs of family members. Okay, 1 Timothy 5.8. You also have, in the Old Testament, you also have a passage that elaborates upon wives or moms taking care of their kids. Do you remember that passage at all? Where she makes sure that in the winter they have clothes. She rises up early. Anybody remember what text I'm talking about? Yeah, the virtuous woman. She rises up while it is yet night and gives meat to the household. She's not afraid of the snow. Her household is closed. She looks well to the ways of the household. It's just there. You also have Jesus assuming that dads are taking care of their kids' physical needs properly. Do you remember how he brings this out in prayer by the illustration? What, fa- what father... Yes, am I saying it right? What father would give to his son if his son asked for bread? What father would give his son a stone? And if the, fa- if the kid asked for a fish, what father would give him a serpent? Okay, what's he saying? Well, we know that the, what he's saying in that clear text is, if you who are good parents, that you, you take care of your kids, how much better our... Yeah, he's making the analogy... But understand that this analogy that's driving home, and I understand the gist of the text, is promoting trusting God to give us good things. He is assuming that parents are doing what? They're taking care of the kids. He's bringing it out as this is just normal. This is natural. They're providing for their family. And so it's very clear, okay, in scriptures, without needing a whole lot of text, it's very clear we're to be providing and protecting. That's the easy one. That's because we know that. This is what we're ingrained. This is our cultural mandate. This is what our, you know, our society is drifting somewhat. But as a whole, we understand this. Parents have the responsibility to care for their kids. We understand. But now we get into some of those other roles, those other assignments that are more difficult, such as being a promoter, being a prayer, being an ambassador, being an advisor, being an authority, which are all different accounts from different passages that we need to talk about. But our time is expended for now. Let's just stop right here. Next week we'll pick up on some of these other roles that we have as parents. So, God, I pray, give us a sweet evening. Thank you for the clarity of your word. Thank you for the understanding of these people, for their input in this study. Give us a good week where we honor you to the best of our abilities to live godly so you can bless us. Help us, each and every one of us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, thank you, thank you for being here.